This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we're introducing a new book, and I always love New Book Day because on New Book Day, we get to talk about the author, the author's history, the author's philosophy, all the things that influenced the author to create the book that we're looking at. I'm very excited about this month's book, too. It's unlike the other books we've done in a lot of ways. For one thing, it's written by a contemporary author. And for another, this book is so different than what we've done in the past. For one thing, it's not postmodern. And I'm ready for a vacation from the postmoderns. Um, with all their doom and gloom and angst that we've looked at in the last several books. That's true. We don't really usually do a lot of uh, contemporary literature. It's not really the purpose of this podcast. But Paulo Coelho does stand out amongst his peers in a way that deserves special recognition. There is really no way to underestimate the influence that this, or really to overstate the influence of this man's writing and the influence that he's had as a person on planet Earth in the 21st century. In fact, I can't even get a finalized number of how many copies of his book are out there. Every article I read pushes that number higher and higher and higher. The most accurate, even though I'm sure it's still a low figure, says that it's been translated into 80 languages. And there are over 250 million copies of his work sold. Just The Alchemist has sold over 150 million copies. And that was by 2015 when they released the 25th anniversary copy. He is in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most translated book by any living author. It's being read in over 119 countries. Another funny record that he holds, I think it's funny, he has signed more translations of his book in a single setting than any other author. 
at one book fair in Frankfurt, he signed 53 different translations of his book, which is absolutely more more difficult than I could even imagine. Well, there's so much to say about this book and its impact, but before we do, I have two things. Number one of which we need the Christie fun fact. You are so silly. Uh, well, anyway, here's the Christie fun fact for today. First of all, you may not know this, that Christie has fired a fully automatic machine gun in the country of Vietnam. Well, that made it sound bad. It was a tourist thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not a tourist thing that very many tourists have done. That's true, but let it be known that I'm anti-violence. <laughs> Most it of the time. For recreational use only. Oh, okay. All right. And secondly, um, as we promised in the teaser for our last episode, I was going to put Christy on the spot to say something in Portuguese in every episode because the author of this book is Portuguese. Off the top of your head, give us a Portuguese phrase. O livro Alquimista é um dos mais famosos livros do Brasil. And I just said that The Alchemist is one of the most famous books in brazil which isn't a very deep thing to say but you caught me on the spot i put you on the spot but i would like to note that for people who speak portuguese and our brazilian friends i'm sure they recognize your accent is 100 authentic so just wow. thought we'd throw that out there uh anyway getting back to the book um we're talking about what an impact he's had what i find interesting uh it is not just a western phenomenon but it reaches people cross-culturally in ways uh, that's completely unheard of. No author's had this kind of access. In fact, he really isn't all that famous inside the United States, although, uh, ironically enough, The Alchemist has been on the New York Times bestseller list for over 400 weeks, and that was a figure from back in 2016. Uh, it was on the French bestseller list for five years. Uh, in an interview with Coelho, he humbly explains, and that really is his demeanor, that his books are most successful in many parts of the world that are under great stress, which is an interesting observation on his part. In both Iran and Israel, there is one of his books in 25% of the homes in those two countries. Now think about that. That means that almost a quarter of the homes in countries as adversarial as those two countries share a love for this man and the message that's in this book. There's really no explaining it. And we're going to speculate, of course, with the best of them on this podcast, that what is the reason that this book resonates with so many people from so many different places and so many different cultures? What is it that Coelho has learned? And what's he saying that everybody just really wants to hear? So before we get into that question, and I think we are going to address it a little bit at the beginning of the book, I think it's just an amazing story how the book got published at all, and it, it kind of a reflection of his whole story. It is. The, the journey of this book becoming a phenomenon absolutely sustains and supports the belief that the book teaches, which is so funny and ironic. So he himself had been asked that question over and over again over the years since it was first published in 1987, and its success is not something Cuello claims to be able to even understand himself. Um, in fact, it, originally it was a flop, and it was first published and then pulled by his first publisher after only printing 900 copies. Don't you wish he had a first edition of that? Uh, Cuello was not a known writer and had no successes, 
And he went knocking on doors and found another publisher who took a risk on him. A, a reason the publisher can't really explain either, by the way, which even more ties into the theme of the book. Uh, it was a small risk. And because of that, uh, Cuello, fortunately for him, got to keep the rights to the book. So the first three years, it sold half a million copies in Brazil, which is respectable, but nowhere near what it was going to achieve worldwide. The big breakthrough came when HarperCollins decided to translate and print the book in English in 1993. And then after that, the rest is history. One of the really things that I admire in Paulo Coelho is that he is interested in making the book accessible. So the story getting out is more important than him financially benefiting from the story getting out. And of course, English is kind of a universal language across the globe. And just having the book published in English, of course, boosts sales worldwide, not just in America. But Coelho really did two things that Push this book kind of into hyperspace, if you want to use a Star Wars analogy. <laughs> First of all, every time a book would come out in a different place, he would go there and he'd do these book tours and he would spend years really traveling the world and visiting little places, uh, smaller countries, places that really didn't get a lot of press. You know, we think of books wanting to be published in New York and London and Paris, and he did those, but he also went to Serbia and Croatia and and smaller places, Thailand, and all these places that he considers to be forgotten. And he says, well, Brazil is kind of a forgotten place, which is not really an accurate representation of Brazil. But that's how he saw it. So he wanted to reach out to these third world places and make himself accessible. Another thing that he did is he took a real personal interest in making sure that these books got translated properly in all these languages. So he would change some of the things that he said, depending on where uh, he was in the world. He also was very involved in price setting in each country. Uh, this is a big problem, obviously, in the third world, because books tend to be very unaffordable. And even in Brazil, they're a hobby for the rich. A lot of um, poor people all absolutely can't really afford to buy books. But what I find is really hilarious, by the year 2000, of course, he'd made a fortune off of his books, and he decided that he wanted to make his book free. So he sets up a website that he calls Pirate Coelho, like encouraging people. <laughs> it's called Pirate Coelho. And if you go to Pirate Coelho, and anybody can do this, you can do this today, you can download his work for free of charge himself. He doesn't charge for it. However, and this is just so amazing to think about, and two th ever since he started doing that, sales have increased instead of decreased. I heard him talking about this, and he gave the example of Russia. He said in 1999, he sold 1,000 copies of his book in Russia. And then he made it available for free. In 2001, he sold 10,000 copies. <laughs> in 2002, he had sold over 100,000 copies in a country where the book was downloadable for free. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the scope, and I don't know if I can express this enough, the magnitude of the impact that this book has had. And I hope that it entices you to to try to read it or give it a go if you haven't yet, because it is worth reading, and it's very, very interesting, as is the man himself. Oh, indeed. And one of the, the sub-stories that I find amazing that goes along with this is that one of the ideas that runs as a theme through the book is the ability to communicate between languages when you don't really know the language. 
And so here is a guy who writes a book about being able to communicate in languages that you don't know that ends up getting translated into innumerable languages around the world. Well, and one of the things that he does when he writes the book is he makes it simple. It's not a... We don't see complicated syntax. It's not fancy words. I was making a vocabulary list for my kids, and I had a hard time coming up with 20 new words that they could learn from reading this book. So the ideas are, yeah, they're they're kind of deep and they're multi-layered, but the language itself is very accessible to anybody who wants to, to give it a go. So it is a fun read. It's an easy read. You don't have to be tired and uh, anxious trying to get through the text itself. Okay, well... Give me an exact pronunciation of his last name with his, your best Brazilian accent so I can say it correctly. Coelho. Coelho. And that means rabbit, by the way. <laughs> okay. Yes. I don't think a lot of people would not know that. Coelho. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that comes up a lot when people talk about Coelho's work and they might find unusual is that he doesn't set his stories in Brazil. Uh, I was expecting to read about Rio de Janeiro or where he's from or something like that. Well, that's true. And that's not just for The Alchemist. That's for all of his works that I've ever seen. But I do say this. There is a thread of, I'm going to call it Brazilianism, uh, that goes through this book mm. in my mind. And I can see that it, it does come from the heart of soul of of Brazil and what it means to be Brazilian a lot of the things that he says does kind of emit, he's emitting a lot of the cultural understanding of his home country. That's very important to understand because there is a lot of unique Brazilian philosophy that's come through. And let me digress for a moment, just to ask you, how did this Brazilian philosophy emerge historically in this country? Well, Brazil is unique. It's not like America or Europe. The United States. Yes, sorry. It's not like the United States in, in several ways. One, uh, it goes back really to the, when it was colonized. It was colonized uh, earlier than the United States. In the 1500s is when the explorers kind of came over. And when they came over, the Portuguese who colonized Brazil had a very different mindset than the American or the Puritans that came over. Well, in this case, let's call them the English. Settlers. The English, okay, and right. in, in North America. And what do I mean by this? So when the English came over, they brought with them this religious agenda. They had families. They were leaving a place because of religious persecution, and they were coming to the United to then would be the new world, the colonies, the col- well, whatever it was, yes. this new space, and they were going to. <laughs> established themselves there and so they were and some of that ended up being bad because they were pushing out the indians and they were creating a colony or a world and they were trying to make a philosophy go and they had these certain beliefs that they had and they were they were religious in nature they were doctoral nature and they brought their families and they had no intention of going back right that's two things that distinguish the english they came to stay and they brought women True. That makes a whole big, a lot of difference. Well, the Portuguese didn't either. Right. So when they came to Brazil, they had all these men who were unattached. Uh, they weren't really interested. They were looking for gold. They were looking for Pau Brasil, which is this wonderful wood that they have down there. And they're really wanting to enrich Portugal back home. So what we saw evolve in Brazil especially, and you see it in their religion and in their culture and in, in their skin color is that these white, you want to call it white Portuguese, came, 
Yes, eventually there were black slaves and there were Indians already here. And from the very beginning, they're intermixing. So you have, uh, if you go to Brazil today, you'll see all these shades of people. You can't tell who's, there's no such thing as a white or a black Brazilian in the way we identify people up here. They're all, everyone is a mix. And, and you see that not just in their skin color, but you see that in their religion. The Portuguese came over with Catholicism, but when they got here, Indians were practicing a different religion. And animism. Yes, and the Africans came, and they had another form of animism. And all these things over the years have syncretized into Brazil. They never clashed, kind of in the way you would see maybe Islam and in Christianity Europe, yeah. clash. Yeah, in Europe. They melded, and so... You go to a Catholic church in Salvador, and it was built for the Catholics by slaves. And in the iconography or in the art of the church, you see that the African slaves put in symbols from their religion on top of the Catholic religion. And so you see a lot of this syncretism uh, finding its way in Brazilian culture. And to this day, there are lots of Brazilian Catholics who will also practice forms of spiritism and Paulo Coelho is among that group. So you see this convergence of faith that has developed in Brazil that is different than you see faith and metaphysics and things like that uh, diverge or evolve in other parts of the world. And that's exactly what we're seeing expressed right. in the and narrative of the story. And the end result is a worldview that is distinctly Brazilian. And that's the point we're trying to make. He is writing from a worldview that you only get out of that culture. And that's part of the, the interesting part of how the story is going to develop. I mentioned this many times before, but I want to explain a little bit more now. Christy is from Brazil, but she's not Brazilian. Her parents were missionaries and moved their family to Brazil as a child. So effectively, you grew up there your whole childhood um, and learning Brazilian natively. So Christy attended Brazilian schools, not American schools, where you were separated from the population. You were actually in the real Brazilian schools. You grew up speaking Portuguese. And to this day, you love everything Brazil-related. And just for the Brazilians out there, for her favorite soccer team, it's... Atlético Galo. Oh, no. Well, the Brazilians <laughs> will understand. Anyway, so every Saturday morning when we're home, and that's most weekends during the school year, uh, we get up in our room, in our parlor room, for what we call it, our reading room or whatever, in our chairs, and we eat pão queijo. Did I say that correctly? You did okay. So, okay, you tell yeah. us how to say it. <laughs> you said it right. Pão queijo. Okay, queijo. Uh, a Brazilian cheese bread that we keep stocked in our freezer. So, Christy, from your perspective, how do you see this book as uniquely Brazilian? Well, I told you, I think religiously it's distinctly Brazilian. But you also see an optimism that really comes from, um, this is totally my opinion, but from the history of the Brazilian people. You know, the Brazilians, they will always find the bright side of everything and their history as many countries in South America is full of a lot of historical turmoil and this idea of always finding the right angle the they call it the you're going to danger you're going to make it work mm -hmm. is really at the essence of, of how they pursue their life and Paulo Coelho lived through a very very transitional period in brazil and even through his own life there were so many ups and downs politically mm -hmm. that he was personally a part of these i feel like have come out 
as he tells his story, this idea of pursuing and never giving up and never allowing yourself to to surrender this to this culture of victimization that's really popular right now is at the core of his of his ethos as a human and at the core of his story. He was born in 1947 in Rio de Janeiro to a middle-class family. Now his parents weren't necessarily religious people and his father was an engineer. In fact, they're really kind of scientific. But they sent him to a Catholic Jesuit school because that was the best school in the area. So he, and you see this in the story, he knows a lot about the Mm -hmm. Bible and there's a lot of biblical references embedded in the text uh, throughout. His mother really wanted him to be an engineer, which of course is totally understandable even to this day. But in Brazil, it was really important, especially back in those days, to have a very marketable degree. Um, Brazil economically has been, you know, it's been a wreck, and especially during those years. And it wasn't a democracy. And uh, in fact, it was a military dictatorship. And it remained a military dictatorship all the way through his life until 1985. Now, by that point, I was already living there, so I can kind of remember even though I was a child and I didn't understand what all that meant, um, I can remember people talking about stories about relatives or people they knew going missing. Uh, You weren't supposed to talk about different things. There was censorship. People talked about that sort of thing. I can also remember when they elected their first democratically elected president, Tancredo Neves. The country went nuts. Mm. I mean, it's like they won the World Cup. It was a huge deal. We got out of school. There were celebrations. And then, of course, it wasn't very long after that that he died, and the country went into mourning over this. Again, we got out of school. There was this funeral. There was a procession. He was from Minas Gerais, which is where I was from. And so these are things that I remember and that impacted me of the enormity. The, and, of course, I didn't understand at the time, the enormous consequences of these transitions mm-hmm. and these political transitions that affected the currency. They changed their currency three or four times during that time period. The inflation was a huge problem. And all of these things uh, were impacting the daily life of everybody in the whole country. So when he told his mother that he was going to be a writer instead of an engineer, they she thought he had flipping lost his mind. And so did his father. To the point that they actually had him committed to a psychiatric hospital. (laughs) And and he had to go through all this stuff, which included electroconvulsive therapy. Well, electroconvulsive therapy is used as an antidepressant technique. So, well, anyway, I don't know why. They just couldn't believe what he was doing. They thought he'd lost his mind. He was making choices that they didn't agree with. They said, you know, there's some documentation about why they put him in there. And he, if you read it today, it looks, no one would put you in a hospital for that now. But they just thought he was a lunatic. Mm-hmm. And it had everything to do with him wanting to pursue art, music, and writing, and all this stuff that they just thought was absolutely meaningless. Well, the the stint at the hospital didn't fare well. He, <laughs> I can't imagine it would. <laughs> he ran away twice, and they finally just dis- discharged him. And he went back home, and they conceded that, uh, okay, fine, you don't have to be an engineer. But I feel like that there was problems in the family relationship as you can imagine there might be if that were your parents so he leaves home 
And he goes, and this is how what he says. He says he went to live a life of, quote, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that, uh, for most people, doesn't go well. <laughs> I mean, the people that I know that have said left home and quit school and go on to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, that can be disastrous. But in his case, Quedu figures out a way to make it work. He runs into this guy named Raul Seixas. Now, Raul Seixas, if you don't, if you're not from Brazil, you probably haven't heard of him. But he is super well known. He's almost like their version of Elvis Presley or John Lennon, or you know, if you want to go back to our illusions, he's like mm-hmm. the, the Robert Burns of of his generation. He was writing songs in a Brazilian style, using some of the local culture and art of of their. Uh, of their music, but he was making it rock and roll for real. And he hooked, Paulo Coelho hooks up with them and they start writing songs that become financially successful. So all of a sudden, Paulo Coelho actually becomes rich. And um, a rock star. And I don't know, well, I don't know if he became a rock star, so to speak, I don't, but maybe he did. I don't know. But he certainly got wealthy off of his relationship with Hausatius. However, this guy was also political. And they started wanting to start this anarchy colony, and they started making these satirical cartoons about the government, and things like that don't go over well in military dictatorships. And so he got himself arrested by the secret police, and then he had to go have more torture. I mean, not like the psychiatric torture. He had some really bad things to happen to him. So all that to say, after that, when he finally gets out of whatever that was that happened to him while he was tortured, he chills out and he gets married a couple of times. He starts writing for TV shows, telenovelas, and most people would think that that would be success. Success, And it was. It was financially successful, but he was kind of in a rut, just living an everyday life. Until 1982, he hooked up with another woman, Christina, who is going to be his life partner and wife. Uh, and they go to, they come to Europe, or they go to Europe, and they go to this place called Dachau. Uh, Dachau is a concentration camp, obviously, and being there at that place was super disturbing. And while he was there, he had a vision of a man, and he calls this man Jay. And in the vision, Jay speaks to him. A few weeks after the vision, he's in this cafe in Amsterdam, and he runs into the dude in real life. And this guy, Jay, tells him to go back to his Catholic faith, something that he abandoned for years for his rock and roll stuff. And Jay said that if he would do that, he would see the image of God in everything from now on. So Coelho takes his advice, and he takes that pilgrimage. It's a famous pilgrimage between France and Spain to Santiago de Compostela. And this experience changes changed his life completely he comes back to religion he comes back to faith and well in a practical way it's the basis of the pilgrimage which is the first book he ever wrote and after that well the rest is history you want to jump into the story let's do it the story is set in andalusia spain i didn't even know where that was when i first read the book and i certainly had never been there but you've been there so tell us about, what is, where is Andalusia 
And what is unique about that part of the world? Well, it's interesting because usually you're the travel expert. So this is the only time I've ever had one up on you. So Andalusia is a southern region in Spain. And what's interesting about this southern region of Spain is going to contain a couple of major cities. That It's got Seville, Granada, uh, Malaga, the uh, Costa del Sol region. And what makes it unique is that it's been the epicenter of three major cultural historical periods. So one of its earliest organizing principles was the Roman Empire. So it was a Roman colony for 700 years. And then the Moors move in in around 700, 715, somewhere in that time period. And so now it becomes a Muslim headquarters. And then after about 700 years of Muslim rule... In 1492, uh, Queen Isabella uh, brings it under Catholic rule. And so now it's under Western rule and you know modern Spanish rule right now. So this is the, really as far as I know, the only part of Europe that has had such a deep Roman history, such a deep Muslim Moorish history, and such a deep Catholic history all wrapped up in one area. So and was it a warring place or were they living peacefully for all those years? Oh, well, during the Roman time, it, there were endless wars in the region. And, it, and at one point, the, the Goths from Germany, not the Goths who wear all black and, you know, <laughs> make, but the Goths from Germany basically uh, wrest control from the, uh, the Romans and then eventually the Moors move in and, and take over. So... Uh, you can go to these cities. I can go to Seville and see the 2,000-year-old Roman aqueduct that runs right through the middle of the city. It's still there. Um, if you go to Granada, you will see Alhambra, which is the, the, the Moorish fortress that was built early on during the Moorish rule right there. It was a symbol of, of the Moorish power in Spain. So anyway... It's very different. You know, you have Madrid in the western part of Spain. You have Barcelona in the eastern part of Spain. They're very different politically. They have political problems. They have political disagreements and cultural disagreements. But this Andalusia area is unique even from the western side with Madrid and the eastern side with Barcelona. They have a history unlike any other spot in Europe. So it's interesting he picks this spot for the story. Well, and I didn't realize until uh, you told me how close it was to North Africa. It's just right. a couple of hours. Well, you, and then you have Gibraltar, which basically you stand in that, well, you can look at Gibraltar and look and see Africa across the strait. But yeah, it's the, the Andalusia area is just across the Mediterranean from the coast of Africa, north coast. Well, this convergence of faith in one place is going to be an idea that we're mm-hmm. going to see throughout the book, and it's an important idea in the story. So it matters that I feel like that that that's the place that this story starts, and it's also going to be the place that this story ends. All right, so let's jump into the beginning of the story and talk about it a little bit. And we're not getting too many details of the story. We'll flesh that out as we go along, but we do want to introduce you to some things that are going on. So the book starts off with a prologue about Narcissus, and it's not the traditional take on the story of Narcissus. Um, so the it, it, what's going to happen in... It, Cuello's use of it is he's using the story of Narcissus to highlight the question of selfishness and um, which is at the center of the alchemist and the whole idea is is it possible to pursue your own personal desires while living a good life and the theme is in the case of Santiago the answer is yes you can do that which is contrasted with the traditional myth of Narcissus sure because then the Narcissus is the story of the guy who stares at himself 
in the lake and he's in love with himself so much that he doesn't eat food and dies there. <laughs> well, I would like to point out him falling him falling in love with himself and staring at his image in the lake was actually a curse. <laughs> and it had the, it had all the appropriate results of a curse. Well, true, but the idea that Coelho is bringing out is, you know, we think of, you know, admiring yourself and loving yourself is very negative, narcissistic. No one wants to be a narcissist. But there is importance in in doing that, in valuing yourself. You should take care of yourself like you matter in the world. And and that's a, a starting point. It is. And we are definitely not going to go down the road of pathological narcissism. That's, oh, no. that's just a whole different treatment. Of, for If we want to go back to postmodernism, we'll go back <laughs> and discuss that. But no, the whole idea of this, uh, of the prologue right here is we're throwing out the idea is it selfish to pursue your dreams? And what Coelho is going to say in the rest of the book is, it is Absolutely not. not. It's and actually a good thing, and you're in agreement with the universe if you pursue your dreams. It's this theme. And it brings goodness to other people. So we see this. I want to start off just by going through a couple of pages of the story. And the first sentence of the whole story says this, The boy's name was Santiago, and it's a short sentence. Which means when authors write short sentences, they want you to stop where the period is and and you're supposed to breathe. So why stop there? Well, you stop at the name. Santiago is Spanish for St. James. Now, you have to know who St. James was in the Bible to make sense of that. But St. James was the first disciple or one of the first disciples that Jesus ever called and when Jesus calls James, he doesn't tell him, oh, I'm going to be doing all this, that, and the other. He just says, follow me. And so following uh, following the voice is the pursuit that he's going to talk about and develop throughout the story. And, of course, this is a New Testament idea. The call to adventure is in the Old Testament. When God calls Abraham, he calls him to leave. Mm -hmm. Go. Go out. I'll tell you later. And the call to adventure is archetypal in books everywhere. Yes. So it's the journey of the hero story. You know, go and follow the dream. The boy's name is Santiago. Well, that's a lot in just sentence one. (laughs) Dusk was falling as the boy arrived with his herd at an abandoned church. The roof had fallen in long ago and an enormous sycamore had grown on the spot where the sacristy had once stood. So we see a picture of a church that's been abandoned. We see this confluence of religion and nature because inside the church, there's an enormous sycamore tree and it's growing at the spot of the sacristy. Now the sacristy is the room where the priest prepares the service that he's going to offer to God. And in this space, There's trees, so there's nature, and it's bigger than, say, the church itself. So the ideas that Coelho is putting in the book, he's going to suggest, yes, they're religious, they're metaphysical, they're psychological, they're truth, they're universal truths. So they're going to be religion, but they're going to be more religion. They're going to be in more than one religion. They're foundational to the essence of the rules that are governing the universe, almost like natural law. So in natural law, it doesn't matter if you believe it in, in, in it or not. Gravity is going to do what gravity is going to do. And his idea is whether you believe it in it or not, whether it's religion or not, these are the rules that are governing the world and they're going to they're gonna go on, so you should get on tune with them. And that's kind of the thinking that he wants you to have when you read to 
the rest of the story. So is this a religious book? Not really. Is there a lot of religious reflection in here? Yeah, and if, if you are a religious person, it's a great discussion to have with the people in your community of faith. To what degree are we going to go with him on these ideas? Mm-hmm. And he's welcoming that kind of discussion. So he decided to spend the night there. He has all these sheep uh, that he's responsible for. He takes care of them. So responsibility, of course, is another important idea in the story. Uh, he's going to um, sweep the floor. He's going to provide for the sheep. And then he's going to pull out a book. And he says, hmm, I should get a thicker book. It'd be a bigger pillow. Plus, I could read it more. And so you start to see this is a guy who takes care of other things, other people. And he's also taking care of himself. And he's pushing himself to any small degree that he possibly can. What's also interesting, too, is that he is a shepherd that can read Right. So we have that juxtaposition right there that's unusual. And he becomes a shepherd, we're going to find out later, because it serves his overarching goal. So he has a dream really into his heart from the very beginning. And this is something that Coyd is going to say. The dreams are in you. They're in everybody. And it's up to you to listen to those dreams, to think about those dreams, and then act on these dreams. And he gives that whole dream idea a name your personal legend. So that is a term you want to remember when you read The Alchemist, is the concept of the personal legend. And this is, of course, is reflected in his own life. You know, his parents wanted him to do one thing. The, the, it would have been sensible to another thing. But there was something in his heart and his soul, and he felt like he was compelled to pursue it. And these are one of the dogmas that he's going to say is ruling the universe. There, You didn't put that in you. It's in you. Somebody else put that in you. God, the universe, whatever. And your response to that is your responsibility. So we see him taking the responsibility of that. He takes care of these sheep. He has a love interest. Uh-oh. Yes. Uh, and he wants to go find this girl. So he's going to take his sheep. He starts the story. and He's going to take the sheep to this little town. Uh He'd been there before a year ago where he met her to get his sheep sheared. And, of course, sheep are going to be the first symbol. I don't know if there is such a thing as a first symbol. This is an allegory. Every single thing in the whole book is a symbol. It's another. Yeah. So the sheep are these are going to represent like people that are herded around. And he's going to go on and discuss the sheep. Sheep don't make decisions. They, They only care about eating and drinking getting food, getting water. Now, they're interested in getting good food and getting better water, but that's the sum of their uh, existence. They're content. They're content to just eat, drink, do nothing else. And he says this, they don't rely on their own instincts. That's what he says is the distinguishing difference between a sheep and maybe him. They're, They're pleasant. He loves them. He talks to them, but they don't do anything of their own initiative. He has to lead them to nourishment so they're led and that's the problem with being a sheep well i think we'll stop there and we'll pick up with the story and and introduce the characters but right now we want to bring in these themes that it's really this is an allegory for life's journey for life's growth this idea of the personal legend your destiny your growth it's going to get into a discussion about free will uh, versus fate universal oneness And he's going to bring all this out in all these characters as we go into future episodes of this. So, 
Anything else you want to add, Christy? I think that's it. Okay. It's a fun book. It's going to be encouraging. It's designed to encourage you, and it's designed to encourage all of us, and I feel like the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, worldwide, no doubt. <laughs> all right, so um, we would love for you to hang out with us for the next few weeks as we talk about this book. And if you want to uh, know more about what's going on with the How to Love Lit podcast, check us out on the howtolovelitpodcast.com page. We have information there for teachers. If you're a classroom teacher, we have resources for you uh, on how to use a podcast in a classroom and how to teach with it. And um, we would like for you to use those resources. Check them out. Follow us on our Instagram page. Follow us on our Facebook page. We'd love to have you along as we go across Africa and Spain and everybody else with Santiago. Peace out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.